Testament from Isaiah chapter 40, reading the first 11 verses. This uh, relates to our New Testament reading as well, since it is uh, quoted, a part of it is quoted by John the Baptist to describe the kind of ministry that he has. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 1, page uh, 828 in the Pew Bible. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up unto the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Then reading from the New Testament, from the Gospel of John, Page 1,220 in the Pew Bible, John chapter 1, beginning with verse 19 and reading through verse 28. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, And did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you, that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent from the Pharisees and now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in 
Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, John the Baptist was the son of Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth were descended from Aaron, the brother of Moses. And therefore, they were of the priestly family. All priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. All Levites could help in the ministry of the temple, but only the descendants of Aaron, a subset of the tribe of Levi, could serve as the high priest. And John is of that high priestly family. At the age of about 30, the age when Moses said that priests should begin their work, John began his work. He went out toward the Jordan River and began preaching. He began preaching a message, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Soon after he began his ministry, he took it across the Jordan River, uh, most likely in the dry season. There was a dry season for the Jordan River and a flood season for the Jordan River, and we know that vast multitudes followed him across the Jordan, and so it was probably during the dry season when they could easily walk across, didn't need any miracle to get through it, as Joshua did when he crossed in flood season. But John went on the, on the far side of the Jordan River, out into the wilderness, and uh, there began to proclaim a message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. His ministry is something like that of Joshua, uh, who took over the leadership of Israel after Moses died, who brought the Israelites also to the east side of the Jordan River. And just before they were about to cross over into Jordan, cross the Jordan into the promised land, uh, he told them to consecrate themselves, or as our New King James translation has it, sanctify yourselves, uh, make yourselves holy, make yourselves clean. Because tomorrow you're going to see a great work of God. God's going to be with you in a special way and bring you into the kingdom of God. Well, now John has taken Israel back out into the wilderness, back out across the Jordan River, and is consecrating them, making them holy, making them clean, calling them to repent of their sins. And those who repented are granted a symbolic cleansing, a ritual baptism. Uh, washing with water. Uh, given the stage of the uh, of the river, it was most likely most likely not by dunking, but uh, by the uh, mosaic method of sprinkling. And uh, he uh, he baptized them, and then they were ready now to enter the promised land again, and not only enter the kingdom of God. But John also is the forerunner of the King, of the Messiah, and uh, so they're ready to, to meet their God as well. Well, this ministry attracted huge crowds. And of course, that aroused the curiosity of the priests and the Levites, the Sanhedrin. And so they sent a delegation to be inquisitors 
to find out uh, just what's going on here. Who is this rabble-rouser? Who is this popular preacher who is attracting so much attention and causing such a stir in Judah and Jerusalem? And they come to him with questions. And in answering their questions, John begins to do what John the Gospel writer tells us John the Baptist came to do. He was not the light, the Gospel writer tells us, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. And in answering these questions, he begins to bear witness to him who is the light, the one who he is the forerunner of. We see uh, an indirect light as he uh, says who he isn't, and uh, then a direct light when he tells us of the greatness of this man. First he points us away from himself, and then he points to one who is greater than he is. So let's look at uh, these uh, questions and answers that uh, John, uh, the gospel writer, has recorded for us regarding the inquisitors uh, seeking information about John the Baptist. First of all, they come and uh, want to know uh, who he is. And he, without any equivocation, tells them, I am not the Christ. That, of course, was what was on everybody's mind. There was great messianic hope in Israel. Not a very well-developed or biblical messianic hope, because the messianic hope was fervent among them because of Roman oppression. And they wanted a Messiah who would come and liberate them from Rome. Uh, That's what was on everybody's mind. And of course, the Sanhedrin wasn't too keen on that. And if this guy was claiming to be the Christ, they would have to find some way to discredit them because they had made their peace with Rome and had a very lucrative business going on at the temple. And they enjoyed a great deal of local autonomy uh, with uh, the permission of the Romans. And, and so they didn't want anything to upset that. And if this guy was claiming to be the Christ, then, of course, they would have to find a way to get rid of him or discredit him, as they later did with regard to Jesus. But he, uh, he doesn't uh, give them any problem on this score. He makes it abundantly clear, I am not the Christ. Well, they said, then, who are you? Uh, are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask that? Why would they ask, uh, are you Elijah? Well, the last two verses of the Old Testament, the last two verses of the prophet Malachi, prophesy that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah will come to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers. Uh, Elijah will come to uh, reconcile the, uh, the, the, the just with the unjust uh, is another way of expressing that uh, in a parallel uh, verse. Uh, it probably refers not just to intergenerational strife, but the strife between the original generation of the patriarchs, uh, the, the fathers in the faith and their wayward heretical children, By uh, preaching to the heretical children, uh, there would be reconciliation between the faith of the fathers and the faith of the children. And that was part of Elijah's ministry. And Malachi says that before the great day of the Lord, Elijah is going to return. Now, the people understood that literally. You remember uh, that Elijah didn't die. Elijah 
uh, was taken up into heaven, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. The, the spiritual song is about uh, the fiery uh, horses and chariot coming down, swooping down between Elijah and Elisha and taking Elijah up into heaven alive. And since he's still alive, he can come back. And they were literally expecting the the real Elijah, to, who's still alive in heaven, to come back to the earth and take up a ministry of preaching repentance to the people. Are you this Elijah? And John says, no, I am not that Elijah. Now, some people are troubled by John's answer because uh, the angel who announced John the Baptist's birth said he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, to the the just, to the unjust. Um, And Jesus affirms that also and says, uh, if you will uh, believe it, Elijah has come and it's John the Baptist. Uh, Are John and Jesus in conflict with each other? Well, not really. Uh, There are... Two ways to interpret the prophecy, one literally and one metaphorically. And uh, the people, when they asked John, are you Elijah, were thinking literally, are you literally that same person? And John truthfully answered, I am not that same person. Uh, but that's not what the prophecy meant. That's not how the prophecy was meant to be understood the angel who announced his birth and Jesus said uh, he has come in the spirit and the power of Elijah to do similar work that uh, Elijah did to preach repentance so that the people, uh, the unjust, will be reconciled with the just, the fathers uh, to the children and so forth. And so uh, John rightly affirms uh, That literal interpretation of the prophecy is not being fulfilled. I am not that literal Elijah come back from heaven. Well, then they ask, are you the prophet? What's that all about? Well, Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses prophesied uh, or uh, that uh, one day God would send another great prophet. And there had been much speculation in Jewish theology down through the centuries about who this great prophet might be and whether he would be the, also be the Messiah and so forth. And so part of the messianic expectation not only included uh, the coming of a Messiah and the return of Elijah, but also a great prophet. Uh, There was debate among the rabbis, would the Messiah be a priest, would he be a prophet, would he be a king, or would he be all three, or would he be two out of the three? And uh, they went back and forth trying to understand the prophecies, and so they come now to John the Baptist with uh, that speculation in their background, are you the prophet of whom Moses spoke? And John, somewhat tired of speaking of himself, answers with one word, no, I am not the prophet. Well, then they said, uh, who are you? If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, who are you? Well, it's at that point that John does say something positive about himself, uh, and that is that he is the voice crying in the wilderness of whom Isaiah spoke. We read the prophecy from Isaiah 40. Isaiah, of course, was the prophet who prophesied before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, who prophesied that the Babylonians would come and destroy 
uh, Jerusalem and destroy the temple, uh, God would visit his people in great wrath and anger. But Isaiah's prophecy was not all doom and gloom. He also wanted to assure them that after God's judgment, there would be comfort. And so Isaiah 40 begins with comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Uh, Your sins have been taken care of. And uh, a voice goes forth crying, you know, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every uh, uh, valley shall be filled in. Every hill uh, made low. Every crooked uh, path made straight. The rough made plain. Uh, He's using a metaphor there for uh, uh, spiritual life of the people. The spiritual life of the people is a mess and it, it needs to be put right in order for God to come to them. They need to, to, to get their, their act together. If uh, God is going to come to them, uh, they need to be prepared by repenting of their sin. And, uh, right now, the, uh, the hills and the valleys and the crooked and the rough, uh, parts of their lives, the spiritual uncleanness of their lives, uh, hinders the coming of the Lord. And so they need to make the path for the Lord's coming uh, straight. Uh, this is uh, reflected somewhat uh, in the, the, the New Testament where uh, Peter uh, uh, says uh, in his uh, prophecy in Second Peter speaks about the the coming of the second coming of the Lord and the the cataclysm that uh, and the judgment that will take place and says uh, now uh, what manner of people what sort what what sort of people ought you to be in lives of of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God in view of the coming of the Lord to come and and usher in the fullness of the kingdom you need to be holy. And, and that's what the voice crying in the wilderness is saying. That God is coming. And because he's coming, you need to, to make yourselves holy. John the Baptist understands that the people need to prepare for the coming of the Lord. So he calls them to straighten up their lives and repent of their sins. Uh, in the wilderness, he's, he's conducting a ministry to get rid of sins so that they can enter the promised land afresh as for the first time, ready for the Messiah and ready for the kingdom of God. Uh, this idea of preparing for the coming of the Lord is uh, uh, by uh, living uh, sanctified holy lives is found again and again in Scripture. Uh, last uh, Sunday morning, uh, Reverend Barnes uh, preached to us from the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, which is a call to sanctification. Uh, this is God's will for you, your sanctification, particularly with regard to uh, sexual purity. But uh, that call to sanctification comes right after the last verse of chapter 3, which mentions the return of the Lord. Uh, the Lord is returning. And uh, because the Lord is returning, you need to live sanctified and holy lives. You find the same thing in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, where uh, it mentions uh, the return of Jesus Christ as a husband coming for his bride. And uh, the bride is to be made without spot or blemish in preparation for the coming of the bridegroom. Now, we must be careful to understand this is not uh, a, a conditional promise where if we do what's right, then God will come. No, it's not that at all. Rather, it is uh, 
a sign of our faith when we sanctify our lives, a sign of our faith in the promise of His coming. Uh, many of you have been married, and I doubt that any of you were stood up on your marriage day. That is, uh, uh, the groom didn't show up or the bride didn't show up and you were left standing at the altar alone. Uh, no, on your marriage day, you were confident of the love of your partner. And how do you... How do brides prepare for that day? Well, for months in advance, they make plans, buying dress and preparing uh, decorations. And uh, on the day, they get their hair done and their nails done. And they, they make themselves as beautiful as they possibly can. Why? In the hope of perhaps earning the love of the groom? No, not at all. They're, they're confident of the love of the groom. They're doing it to please Him, to, to show their, their love. They know He's going to be there, standing at the front of the church, and they want to present themselves beautiful for Him. Well, your bridegroom is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is the bridegroom of the church. Do you believe? Do you believe He's coming? Do you really believe that He's coming, that, that we will see Him? Then... If you believe, if you are confident of His love, confident that He has died for you, paid for your sins, adopted you as His child, made you an heir of eternal life, and will one day come to usher in the fullness of the kingdom, then we ought to be living sanctified, holy lives. We ought to consecrate ourselves. And we ought to be doing that daily for... He comes to us daily. We, he is with us daily. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, honor God with your body by, by living sanctified, holy lives. He comes to us each Lord's Day when we gather in His presence. Therefore, we ought to consecrate ourselves every day in preparation for that meeting with the Lord. And we're told that the great and glorious parousia, the second coming of the Lord, could happen at any time. You know, there were, there were signs for the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, but with regard to the parousia, there's only one rule. Be ready. It could happen at any time. And so the call of John the Baptist to, to repent and be baptized, to clean yourselves, to, to consecrate yourselves, to sanctify yourselves in preparation for the coming of the Lord is a call directed to you today. Not just to the generation that saw Him come once, but to our generation, because He comes to us daily, He comes to us weekly, and He is coming in His great second coming. And we need to hear that call and humble our hearts and confess our sins and repent daily to show that we believe He's coming, to show that we love Him, and that we're thankful for what He's done for us, and that we're looking forward to His second coming. Peter says, These, those who have this hope... Those who have the hope of, of the coming of the Lord purify themselves even as they are pure. We have been made pure by the blood of Christ. Our guilt is washed away. We are totally righteous in His sight. And now with regard to the corruption of sin, we make ourselves pure because we have this hope, because we believe He's coming, because we know He loves us. We respond with repentance. 
daily repentance, weekly repentance, a life of turning away from sin and turning toward God day by day. Oh God, give us a heart, a humble heart of repentance. That's John's message. That's who he is. The one who calls God's people to repentance in preparation for the coming of the one who has loved us and given his life for us. But John's witness doesn't stop there. They then want to know, well, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing? Now, we need to be careful to understand John's answer here. This question is a question about authority. By what authority are you doing this? If you're not anybody, why are you doing this? Many people immediately, when they read his answer, I baptize with water, uh, think that he is uh, contrasting his baptism with John's bap- with Jesus's baptism, which is a baptism with uh, uh, the Spirit. And indeed, John makes that comparison, but not here. Uh, we shouldn't read that into here. This is in answer to the question of authority. And when he, well, his answer is, "I baptize with water." He's saying something important to us. Now, baptism was an important part of temple ritual from the time of Moses. Moses, who sprinkled the crowds with water mixed with blood, a hyssop branch with strips of wool on it, dipped into a bowl of water with a little blood in it, and then the strips of wool would soak up the liquid, and then he would just go like this, holding on to the stick, and the droplets of water would go out and spray the congregation, spray the altar, spray the furniture in the temple, and he baptized everything. But that wasn't the only baptism. There are all kinds of baptisms. The whole uh, laver in the uh, temple, the biggest piece of furniture there, uh, was all about washing. Washing people, washing sacrifices and so forth. Uh, And there were uh, baptisms of uh, putting a little uh, blood here on the forehead, on the thumb and on the big toe. And uh, baptisms on the third day and the seventh day if you came in contact with a dead person. In Hebrews chapter uh, 9 uh, we we read that uh, there were all kinds in Britain, uh, Hebrews 9, 10. Uh, they talk about the uh, ceremonies of the Old Testament. And he says there are all kinds of ceremonial washings. And the Greek word for washings in the New Testament in Hebrews 9, verse 10 is baptismos, from which we get the word baptism. And we could translate Hebrews 9, 10. There were various ceremonial baptisms. And when John says, I baptize with water, he's saying, I stand in that tradition. I'm a priest. You want to know by what authority I do this? I do it with the authority of a priest. But as soon as he does that, as soon as he says that I am a priest, he immediately recognizes that even a priest, by comparison to the one who is coming, is nothing. He says, but there's one among you you don't know. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to unloose. You know, loosening somebody's sandals was preparatory to washing their feet. And he's talking about the foot washing that, that slaves did. And, you know, no one could be asked or commanded to wash another person's feet except a slave. A teacher couldn't ask his students to do it. A rabbi uh, who had uh, paying disciples, uh, uh, he couldn't say uh, to his uh, Disciples, oh, by the way, uh, you have to uh, wash my feet as well. A a rabbi couldn't ask that of his students. But 
You could ask a slave, you could command a slave to loosen your sandals and wash your feet. And John is saying, I'm, I'm beneath that. I'm lower than a slave. I'm nothing in comparison with this one who is coming. He's exalting the person of Jesus Christ, whom John the Gospel writer has described to us as he who was in the beginning was with God and was God. And and, uh, he is the word made flesh who dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, the the gospel writer, understands all that as he's writing this, but at this point we don't know how much of that John the Baptist understood, but John the Baptist understood enough to know that this Jesus had come before him uh, and uh, was greater than him, even though Jesus was born after him. Uh, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He he knew the divinity of of Jesus Christ, and and he is exalting the person of Christ. Uh, You know, the the gospel consists of, of two Two main parts, uh, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And with regard to the person of Christ, he is an exalted being, even though, even apart from anything that he has done for us with regard to our redemption, just who he is makes him worthy of our worship and praise. And, and here John is, is dealing with the person of Christ. Uh, two verses down, he'll start dealing with the work of Christ when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. But, but now he's, he's dealing with the person of Christ and he's exalting Christ. And we see John humbling himself, saying, I'm nothing and he's everything. And I think, I think uh, the Reverend Tim Keller is right when he says in his sermon on this passage that, that this is a key to, uh, to understanding John's power. Now, John's power, of course, is a work of the Spirit in his heart and so forth. But here we see a man who humbles himself and says, I'm nothing. Now, normally we, we associate humility with weakness and uh, powerlessness. A humble person is a person who gets stepped on and used by others. But that wasn't John the Baptist. When, when the leaders of Jerusalem come to him, he says, you brood of vipers. Uh, who says that? <laughs> who has the courage to say that to, to the leaders of his people? And, and King Herod, he went up to King Herod and said to his face, you're an adulterer. You shouldn't have your brother's wife. And when Herod put him in jail, he didn't go, oh, please forgive me, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> no, he, he, he continued to, to condemn Herod for what Herod had done. Where did he get such courage Well, he got such courage because he had such a vision of the exalted Christ. He's everything. I'm nothing. What happens to me in this world doesn't really matter in the end. What matters in this world is that I exalt Jesus Christ. And when we gain a vision of who Jesus is, when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, when we see that He was in the beginning with God and was God, and through Him all things were made, and without Him was nothing made that was made, and in Him was the we have seen His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, as our hearts are drawn to Him, and we realize that He loves us even though we're filthy sinners, then we too can recognize, you know, it doesn't matter what happens to me so much in this world, 
as that I, I hallow him. Again, last week we heard, hallowed be thy name. That should be our first concern. God didn't come to, to make you rich and to make you healthy and to give you your best life now. He created us for His own glory, that we might glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And when a person begins to see Jesus for who He is, the Lord of glory, and recognizes that, that we're nothing in comparison to Him, then, then there's power to, to do whatever He tells us to do without fear of man, because our lives are in His hands. That's John the Baptist. And, and John is showing us that, that really the role all of us are called. He's everything. We're nothing. Glory be His name. May He be hallowed in us and may He be hallowed through us. May He be treated as holy. And may others come to know Him as the Holy One through us. May God give us grace to daily repent of our sins in preparation for meeting with Him daily and weekly and in His great parousia, His second coming. And may we be, see His exalted nature, humble ourselves before Him and live fearlessly for Him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for John the Baptist. We thank You for the light that he shed on who Christ is that He is God come to meet with His people, calling us to repent in preparation for it. Help us to show that our faith in the promise is real by living sanctified and holy lives. We pray, Father, that uh, we might also see Christ as the exalted one, humbling ourselves before Him and willing to give our all in service to Him, knowing that He cares for us. Father, we ask for such faith in ourselves and in all whom we know. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.